A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Experiential Theology podcast. This is episode 20, God, the World, and Modern Physics. Before we begin, um, I just want to welcome Ben once again. He's going to be here with me as usual. And uh, I wanted to touch on the biblical basis for this idea of God and creation. I'm going to start by reading just one scripture, really short, and then we'll start talking about it. Here we go. It comes from Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, New Revised Standard Version. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, so that was Psalm 8. All right, Ben, so let's talk about just the Bible and what it has to say about creation. Uh, what do you want to share with us? Well, there's lots to say. Um, there's lots to say. A, a, a great, I think a, a good place to start is that uh, in biblical literature, like the, the, one of the ways to distinguish um, God from other things is that God is the creator and other things are not. And most other things are creation. So so when you want to talk about a concept of divinity or what counts as divine in the, in the scriptures, um, a shortcut to that is just to say what is creator and what is creation. And often biblical authors will simplify idolatry as something that they want to avoid or criticize as worshiping the creator rather, or rather worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so so, so the, yeah, the creation and, and God and divinity and idolatry and true worship, they're all really tied up together in the scriptures in many ways. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's absolutely foundational, right? I mean, God as creator, it's absolutely foundational to both the Hebrew and the Christian Bible. And I mean, if we don't have that, I mean, what do we have? Although... I'll just add that people actually do theology while being atheists. So I'm not discounting that, but I'm just saying that for the vast majority of Christians, if, if there is no God or creator to speak of, I mean, what are we even doing? It's, it's important. Uh, most people get their theology of creation from the first few chapters of Genesis, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It turns out that there's two creation accounts there. And most people read them as supporting this idea of creation ex nihilo, meaning that God creates everything out of nothing, which uh, I agree with. But biblical scholars and theologians have largely concluded that that's not really what's going on in the first few pages of scripture. They tend to say that what is going on there is God bringing order out of chaos and bringing the conditions so that human, animal, and plant life can flourish. So that's the basic early idea of creation in the Bible. Any additional thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, I agree with that. I think from, from the, I'm not an expert at all on this, but from the studies that I've done, um, the, the, the most faithful way to get to the original perspective of, of Genesis uh, or other Hebrew Bible um, authors is really, they really see God as creating from chaos or creation from chaos for the most part. It's the emphasis is on, is on the fact that chaos is this threat and God has created 
a way for us to live amidst this chaos. And so uh, the narrative in Genesis is the God is going backwards. It's almost an uncreation where chaos returns. Often chaos is personified or connected to the, the waters or the ocean uh, in the scriptures. Um, I th- especially think in the book of Job, that's another great place to go for creation theology. It, we, we have this sense that Job's, Job is flourishing because God has held all the chaos at bay from his life. And then Job is tested by God permitting that chaos to return to some extent. Mm-hmm. And, and when Job questions God and they finally have a confrontation um, where, where the Lord speaks out of the whirlwind, it, there's a lot of talk about, about, about creation. Um, I, I'm just going off the cuff here. I don't have it in front of me. So there's a remarkable passage in Job where, where he sort of curses the day of creation. There's probably more than one spot <laughs> where he's so upset that he, he, he curses the, the day of creation uh, and, and wishes that it had, that it had never happened uh, or at least with respect to his own life. And so, so anyway, I think that Job is an extremely rich place to go for, for thoughts about creation in, in our, in our scriptures. And there's lots more to say about that. Oh, I think that's enough to get us started. Uh, Why don't we transition to now talking about the similarities between this idea of creation and maybe eschatology. How do you see creation and eschatology um, having some kind of theological symmetry? Right. So when we um, pick up the we often realize that somebody has organized it so that creation is on the first page and eschatology is on the last page. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we live our lives, we begin in the middle. We begin in the present. I'm born. I think I live. I live alongside others. I have relationships. Um, obligations that I meet, obligations that I fail to meet. Anyway, life is complicated, but essentially it all happens in the present. It's, it's right here in the here and now. I don't, I wasn't there at creation <laughs> and I'm not yet there in the end either. Uh, so uh, why do we say things about creation and why do we say things about the end when they're sort of at a distance? They're deep in the past and deep in the future, potentially. I, th- I think, um, I think what the way this works and the way this should be understood to work is that uh, from an experiential theology perspective is that people have an experience of God in the present, in their actual lives in the present. And from that experience, they draw conclusions about the sort of, of being, the sort of God that they have encountered. And those conclusions send them back to say things about the beginning and to say things about the end. Uh, And so when I read in the scriptures about the creation or even about eschatology, what I'm reading is conclusions that people have drawn based on their present faith or that communities have drawn based on their present faith or that communities over time have drawn through the development of a, of a tradition, but it's still very much the present. It's a, their present faith. Um, they've extended it into the deep past and into the deep future and, and tried to say something about the deep past and the deep future. So, so from an experiential theology perspective, the story of the beginning and the story of the end, those both begin in the present. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I think, uh, the author that has most beautifully put this together for me is uh, Hans Kuhn, the Swiss Roman Catholic theologian and biblical scholar. I believe he just passed away recently. May he rest in peace. But uh, yeah, there's this book that I read by him. It's called On Being a Christian. Excellent, excellent book. And he talks about this, the, the, the similarity of creation and eschatology we know what the present is like. We know history, right? But we really don't know what happened before history, and we don't know where history is going. 
all we have in the biblical accounts are poetic uh, projections of what the future will be like and of what the past must have been like, like you said, in light of our experience and in light of the God that we have encountered, encounter the God who has uh, met us in history and helped us. So yeah, I think that's really important to, to highlight and to put into perspective. Yeah, so let's get a little bit more specific. Let's talk about the New Testament theology, the theology that comes out of the early church, um, which is not necessarily completely unified or, or codified or solidified, but, but that reflects their, their, the early experience of the church. Well, if you study the first 200 years of the Christian faith, you will see, as I'm sure you have, <laughs> that there are obstacles. Uh, like, who am I talking to? You read way more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> when one studies the early church, yeah, there's there were all sorts of um of sort of disagreements and different paths that that people began heading down, and some of those paths turned out to be dead ends, partly because the people on the path that we now enjoy ostracized those who uh, <laughs> thought otherwise, or came to conclusions uh, through one means or another. So one path was that was the idea that that the creation is the work of a lesser being than the God and father of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. that the God and father of Jesus Christ is too great to be involved in the work of creation. This is um, a Gnostic. It belongs under the Gnostic umbrella, more or less. Well, what became the Orthodox Christian faith decisively um, parted with that view and said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So the Father of Jesus Christ, for the Orthodox, even though we've all diversified quite a bit since then, the Father of Jesus Christ is the creator. There's no, there's no greater being behind the creator, and it's not an undignified uh, thing for the, for the greatest being to be the, to be the creator as well. So that says something about the bones of the Christian faith and, and how we approach creation that we give creation dignity and we give creating that creation dignity as well. Any, uh, I'll say something about Christ as creator next. Anything to say about that? No, I mean, yeah, I think that's an excellent summary of early Christian thought. Okay. So then the next thing is that, is that the new Testament starts to describe Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth as involved in creation. Uh, now, many of us just take this for granted or at face value, but, but let me try to describe this from a little bit more of a skeptical perspective. So, so um, one of the uh, ideas that I found helpful, and, and I know that this has been criticized by many scholars, but but I, it still kind of sticks with me, is Richard Bauckham or Borkham wrote a book where he described um, what counted as sort of divine attributes in, in, uh, in New Testament era literature. And things like um, ruling over the world is one of them, uh, but creating is another one. And so for the early church to say that Jesus Christ is not created, but creator is to put Jesus Christ on the divine side of a line that goes right down the middle of reality that splits, that splits reality into divine and not divine or creator and created. So, so it is a big deal that Jesus is described as creator, especially in, especially sort of through the, through, through many interpretations of, of, of the opening of, of the gospel of John. Another, another thing, uh, to keep in mind is um, in a book by Daniel Kirk, where he talks about the fact that many of the things that Christians today and evangelicals in particular will say, oh, that is proof that Jesus is divine. All of the miracles he does, all of the things he, he does, mm -hmm. he does. Um, mm -hmm. Those are actually things that there is biblical precedent for God to empower a human to do. Mm -hmm. So if you read the gospels on the one hand and you read 
the Elijah Elisha cycles in the Old Testament, on the other hand, and say, okay, well, everything that Elisha and Elijah did, whenever Jesus does that too, that doesn't count as proof or evidence that he's divine. <laughs> he's doing what God's anointed people have been said to have done before. He's not, this is not out of, there's no, this is not without precedent. Um, much of much of what we take in, in sort of Christian apologetics as evidence that Jesus is greater and even divine, like that applies to Elijah and Elisha as well. And what do you know? In the Gospels, Jesus is, is often confused for Elijah. <laughs> so, so this is not, this shouldn't be so, like we should have caught on a bit sooner. Um, the one exception is creator. Never, as far as I understand, um, has a... Uh, a great approved human been included in the act of creation, rhetorically speaking, uh, in, in literature. So it is a big deal for the authors to say or, or make it sound like Jesus was involved in creation. Like they weren't there. They didn't see it happen. And um, it's not clear that Jesus told them that was through of him either. <laughs> but when they say that, you got to realize that they're really trying to push Jesus into a category of his own mm -hmm. because they've they are already exhausted all of their Elijah, Elisha parallels. And now they're moving on. To, they're taking it to the next level when they describe Christ as the creator or Christ as preexistent in some sense. And whether you take that literally or not, uh, you, it's still significant. So, so, whether we take the pre-existence of Christ as yes, for sure. Bible says, so we believe it like, okay. Realize that even using these, uh, this concept of Christ as the creator or Christ as pre-existing as a rhetorical tool to communicate something, we're still saying that Jesus is a big deal mm -hmm. either way, <laughs> because this is the, this is what people do when their language is at a limit to try to describe how, um, uh, how unprecedented Jesus of Nazareth was in, in, in their religious experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, I also read a book in the same vein talking about how the early Christians started to worship Jesus, right? And this is not something that as far as we know, people were doing with other historical figures, right? To include Jesus with God as an object of worship, uh, someone to pray to, and so forth. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's it. Yeah. So the early church believed one way or another that God wanted them to worship Jesus. Mm -hmm. They didn't confuse Jesus with his father. This is important. This is sort of a pet peeve of mine. They felt that they were being obedient to the father of Jesus by worshiping the sun they they came to the conclusion that the only way to the father is through the sun and this is possible without confusing the father and the son but once they've once they've uh, crossed that line they they didn't have a hard time saying things along the lines of christ as the creator as well so. yeah excellent okay well let's move on uh let's talk about god and time hmm I'll just say something brief about it. That's probably the extent of my knowledge anyway. So here we go. So St. Augustine wrote about this and many other ideas. And his idea, and I'm not sure if it was the majority idea at the time, but I would imagine that it was, is that time came into being at the same time as creation. So if there was no creation, then there was no time. So in other words, time is ultimately a created category. From my limited understanding, that's what he said. And that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Uh, that's it. That's the end of my knowledge on God and time. I could say a little bit more when we talk, when we talk about the future, but for the time being, uh, what do you <laughs> have to say? Okay, so time is a tricky topic. Um, it's a tricky topic for many, many reasons. And it's so interesting and rich. And when you mix God into it, it just gets extremely interesting and complicated maybe the first thing i should say is um is the sort of two different types of time so these are roughly called uh, 
A, A theory and the B theory. So if I have an event, I'm not talking about a theological event as we've had discussions about before. Um, like an event is basically a place and a time. Two events, two different places, two different times. Uh, so any two events, uh, we can describe one as before the other and the other after the first one, right? So we have a difference between before and after. So either way with time on both the A theory and the B theory, there's such a thing as before and after. This is before that, that is after this. So before and after, that's part of time. We're gonna keep that for sure. Now the A theory says that not only can we compare pairs of events and say this one is before that one and that one is after this one, but a single event is either past, present, or future without regard to any of the other events out there. And the B theory says, no, 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 past, present, or future are illusions. All we have is before and after. So that's basically it. Is time completely described by the concepts of before and after? Or does time need before and after and past, present, and future? And remember, past, present, and future are properties of a single event. They're just not relative to other events necessarily. So with this, in, um, if God is outside of time, what we're kind of saying is that for God, the concept of before and after exists. So God knows the difference between before and after. He can arrange events into the order of before and after. That's not a mystery to God. But for God, God being outside of time, God realizes that past, present, and future are just illusions, and God's not subject to that illusion, past, present, and future. That would be God as outside of time. And a lot of, a lot of authors take some kind of comfort in this. When something doesn't make sense to them, they say, well, God is outside of time. Eternity is time without past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. and, and from that perspective, whatever was confusing me might make sense. Yeah, I'm being a little bit pejorative here. Um, okay, so then the other option is that no, God is actually inside of time. That God, that God not only knows what order things happen in, but God also knows what time it is right now. That for God, there is such a thing as now, and not just and not just humans that are subject to this concept of now and this illusion of the passage of time. <laughs> This mm -hmm. illusion of past, present, and future. It's not an illusion. God's in, in he's God's part of it too. God's experiencing that same thing with us. And so it's not an illusion. So those are the two options. Like, is God, does God have a future? Does God have a past? Does God have a present? Like we do. Or are those things illusions? And and God knows that it's not really real. That's what's kind of the, that, that's the options. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. And I, I've come across all those different notions. And uh, yes. So, well, let, let's talk about kenosis, kenosis and creation. And then I'll say a little bit more. Okay. So let's Let's say that you, or I don't know, I don't haven't read a lot of Augustine, but he's got a big reputation. So I get the sense that he has the sense that God is outside of time. Um, or, or at the very least, uh, like you said, that time is a creation. So we may, some people want to think of time and being subject to past, present, and future as kind of like a, a limitation of some sort that I... I don't have access to the full future and the full past. I'm stuck in the present. I only have access to the present. So if God was to only be able to access the present as well, if God was stuck in the present, that would seem like a limitation on God. Okay, well, we have a theology that allows us to give God limitations called kenotic theology. Kenosis is a Greek word to the effect of self-emptying or emptying uh, it comes out of Philippians chapter two, I believe. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so what if God in the act of creation wedded God's self to time 
And from the moment of creation forward, God is with us in the present for real. And God is bound to our, to the present, just like us. This would be a sort of canonic theology whereby at the creation, God um, empties God's self of this freedom to not be subject to past, present, and future and become subject to past, present, and future, just like us. Another way to put it, to, to, to use the, a brand with a great deal of credibility <laughs> that at the creation, God is incarnated into time <laughs> and, and, and follows through history in the moving present, just like the rest of us. That would be sort of a creation as an incarnation into time. Mm -hmm. And then the incarnation of Jesus Christ would be an incarnation into a place and a body as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad that you bring that up. So this idea of kenosis, right, with, with Jesus Christ on Philippians 2, and then seeing that as being the pattern of God even before the creation of the world. Uh, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, Jürgen Molman, talks about this, and he adopted the idea from a Jewish theologian or philosopher. He was Spanish from... I'm not sure the Middle Ages. And so I think they call it Zim Zoom. I don't know exactly what it means, but it's this idea that God makes space within God's self, right? So that there can be a universe, there can be a creation, but yet this creation is still within the being of God somehow. So... Yeah, it's really interesting. So in other words, what he's trying to say is that, yes, God is transcendent, but God is also able to be historical, to be imminent without losing any of his transcendence. And so I can, I can see how a lot of Christians can say yes to God being outside of time and also yes to God being inside of time. And uh, I think that's my position. And of course, we, we realize that things are not always going to be how they are right now, especially once we start talking about the eschaton, what is time going to be like? Is time itself going to be redeemed, transformed? Good questions. So yeah, thank you. Okay, well, next thing I want to talk about, I guess, is modern physics and time i my my university education was in math and physics and so i've been trying to like being one person and all i've been trying to see how this stuff goes together with some minor degrees of success and, and some dead ends as well um but let's uh let me just go down a, a list of of some of the stuff that's happened in the last 120 years of physics and and how it sort of affected these questions a little bit so the first thing is um, the theory of special relativity, which Albert Einstein is responsible for. Mm -hmm. And essentially this theory was an attempt to um, explain how electromagnetism works and how we can have electromagnetic waves, which is basically light. And, uh, and, based, and the question is roughly like, well, what speed do these waves go and what do they travel through? Because um, uh, we got waves that go through water, waves that go through air. So where do the light waves go through? Well, to make a long story short, an extremely successful experimental um, theory. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that is built into the theory is this concept of the relativity of simultaneity. The idea that if I'm traveling... Um, if I'm traveling at a certain speed with respect to you, what counts as my now, spreading that now out over space is actually a different set of events than what than, than for you. So, and it, it gets pretty, like it gets very crazy uh, at, at small speeds if you just go out to large enough distances, okay? So um, even if I'm just walking past you at like a walking pace, if I define my now using the coordinates 
of the standard coordinates of special relativity, you and I will disagree by something like 10 seconds about what counts as now on Neptune because it's so far away. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, okay, so now we think, what if God, what if, well, what does God think is now, right? So God is not, um, we don't conceive of God as, as a person in a particular place. So if my now is different than your now, and we're just walking past each other at a different speed, what is going on here? And what, and in, in a nutshell, this has discredited the concept of now. <laughs> uh, uh, it's discredited the concept of an absolute simultaneity, an absolute um, omnipresent now. Mm. And if that's the case, like where does God's now possibly live? Uh, and so for, for many people, this led them to believe that God is outside of time. And you'll see a lot of enthusiasm amongst people who are marginally aware of physics that are in theology and they'll say, well, it's God is outside of time because there is no now for God to occupy really. Hmm. So this is what I thought at one point, but uh, I studied it much more closely and I came to realize that uh, simultaneity is actually conventional. You can look this up on the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy, the conventionality of simultaneity. <laughs> um, that we can, like, at a as far as at a practical level, we can just decide what counts as now to to build our our spacecraft and our satellites and our internet and so on, and we can distribute distribute that, and we don't have to worry about the relative speed of one another. So the GPS navigation system, all of these satellites are whirling around in different directions at very high relative speeds to each other, and yet the whole thing is premised upon them agreeing about what counts as now. <laughs> and so they just have a, a bit of a more sophisticated mathematical model of what counts as now. They're using a different convention. Um, so there's still possibility of there to be a now in which God occupies, even if we're not sure which of all the possible nows that actually is <laughs> as a, as a subset of all the events at a, like that are connected to my now right here so i think i may have gotten a little too complicated at the end there but uh all to say is that the concept of now is still possible <laughs> it's not ruled out contrary to um to initial enthusiasm yeah. okay so i'm gonna try to simplify what you said so in other words let's take uh, the irrational number pi right 3.1415. <laughs> There's no pattern it goes on, but we just we just say, you know what, pi equals 3.14. <laughs> this doesn't work with uh -huh. that. Boom. And it works, right? It's not quite perfect or accurate, but it's good enough. Is that what you're saying, Morley? Uh kind of. Um what I'm saying is that is that the 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 simultaneity of special relativity that was used to discredit the concept of a universal now is very much just a practical definition. Mm. And there's nothing metaphysically binding about it. Mm. Um, and it doesn't change anything practically as far as technology and so forth. Uh, no, no. So the, one of the big themes in mathematics uh, is describing objects without using particular coordinates, right? So I can use X, Y, Z, a triple of numbers to describe mm -hmm. a position in space, mm -hmm. but I could choose different axes and use a different triple of numbers to describe that same position, right? I could just rotate what counts as North by 30 degrees and rotate mm -hmm. what counts as East by 30 mm -hmm. degrees. I could even use axes that aren't, aren't even orthogonal to each other. In any case, it's going to take three numbers, but there's so many different ways that I could choose to use three numbers to represent a place. Uh, and so, but the actual geometry underneath that doesn't depend on my choices about which coordinates I'm going to use. And so there are some things that are physically valid in, rel in special relativity and that are tested. And, but the definition of simultaneity is not one of them. It's, it's just a choice of coordinates that, 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 we're using um, and we can choose different coordinates. And as long as we're consistent, all the experiments still work. Uh, right. Yeah. So let me skip ahead. Um, mm -hmm. 
There's a really interesting, uh, in the 30s, Einstein and two um, colleagues wrote a paper about quantum mechanics. Uh, quantum mechanics, they were wondering, quantum mechanics, the rough idea is that uh, we use this mathematical object called the wave function to predict the outcomes of experiments. And although the wave function is deterministic, so if I know the wave function at any given moment, I can calculate what it is going into the future. Um, the wave function only gives me probabilities that an experiment will go a certain way. So this is why Einstein is famous for the idea of God will not play dice. He, he didn't like quantum mechanics. He didn't like the idea that, that the best we can do is come up with a probability that an experiment will go a certain way. Mm. Okay, so I'm just gonna try not to bungle this explanation here. So he wrote up him and uh, uh, Podolsky and Rosen, I think. So the EPR paper mm -hmm. in the 1930s, they tried to show that quantum mechanics must have some extra information behind it to take away the randomness. So the wave function can't be the whole story. That's what they tried to show. Because if the wave function is the whole story, God plays dice, essentially. So this is theology and physics. He literally says God and dice. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but built into his, into this argument was this uh, assumption about what's called locality. Now, locality is the idea that event, an event at a certain location can only be influenced by events that are within reach of it so mm -hmm. i can't um if i wanted to send a message to neptune right now with a radio or like anyway if i wanted to send a message to neptune and i wanted it to get there right now it's impossible mm -hmm. i have to wait for the signal to get there and the fastest signal available is light or radio or radar or whatever same thing um so that's this is the locality principle that physics at one place can only be influenced by other times and places that can be reached with a radio signal, basically. Mm -hmm. so, so Einstein argued that God doesn't play dice because um, the locality principle is true. And so there has to be something extra to quantum mechanics. Okay, well, in the 1950s and in the 1990s, an experiment uh, confirmed beyond the shadow of the doubt that quantum mechanics does in fact allow distant events that are out of radio reach of one another to be perfectly correlated, which is very close to causation, but philosophically not quite there yet. And this is, this is quantum entanglement. The idea is that I can take a pair of particles, like say an electron, two electrons and prepare them in an entangled state and then send them in opposite directions. And it doesn't matter how far they go, how far they are apart from each other. When I check to see what a certain property is of the one, immediately the other one will have the opposite property. And there's, and there's no way to prepare these electrons in such a way that all of the possible tests I could do on them would always um, have the correct correlation with his partner and yet they do so what this means is that the locality principle is is blown out of the water mm -hmm. the world is non-local like events here affect events there despite the fact that they cannot be reached by radio signals despite the fact that they're out of reach as far as speed of light influence goes mm -hmm. despite einstein's misgivings mm -hmm. and this is extremely bizarre and, and amazing mm -hmm. Um, okay, all that to say, back to the concept of God and time, like we don't, we are very far away from saying past, present, and future, they're just illusions, special relativity says so. Um, there may in fact be such a thing as a universal now spreading out in all directions from right here and now. And even though we don't, we can't access it using our regular experiments, it seems to be behind this quantum non-locality. Um, and yeah, and so, and so 
philosophers of physics have, are, are looking at all possible options here, but, but all I'm, I'm just here to say that as far as I'm concerned, God may very well still be inside of time. <laughs> Great. Uh, I've heard about those uh, experiments. I've read maybe a few blog posts about them, never the actual articles or studies. But it is amazing. It is amazing that something that can happen here in a lab here in the U.S., for example, affects something that goes on maybe in a lab all the way in China, like instantaneously, basically. Wow, that's amazing. I can already I can see a lot of Christians wheels in their brains turning and thinking like, hmm, OK, so what does. <laughs> <laughs> what does this validate that we do <laughs> i mean that's that's where they go usually right and i mean i don't blame them i mean that thing that's okay uh any any connections that you've been able to draw from these amazing studies they're so recent they're so recent right uh any anything that that has done for you in your christian beliefs i, I think what it's I think what I've my 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 uh, tra trajectory in my interpretation of the physics that I've learned is that it's much more common sense than I was told. So often, well, there's a whole genre of popular science writing where people write popular science books, and what they want to do is tell you how weird the universe is because of discoveries in physics. Mm -hmm. And what I found as a trend is that there's often a not so weird way to interpret that same stuff. Mm. So special relativity, the big takeaway from it is that light travels at a finite speed. We have no instant signals that we can send. Um, and there's no way to detect our sort of absolute speed through the universe. Uh, all we can really measure are relative speeds. Okay, like all that is true, experimentally valid and, and good, but it doesn't prove that there's no such thing as a universal now, which mm -hmm. theology can use to retain the idea of the biblical concept of God inside of time. And I don't mm -hmm. say it's true because it's biblical. I just mean, I don't think biblical authors had the sense of God uh, outside of time for them god has a history and a future and a present not not just like an, a correct ordering of before and after in all the events so so i think that yeah i think and yeah right well if nothing else i mean we know that there are a lot of bad new atheists that believe that if you believe in science, more like scientism, if you believe in science, you cannot have any theological beliefs or you cannot be religious and so forth. I mean, that's just so ridiculous, but a lot of people fall for that idea, right? That if you are going to be a Christian, if you're gonna do theology, if you're gonna engage in religious or spiritual practices, you have to check your brain at the door. Absolutely not. I mean, they're two separate domains and they have a lot in common you can be religious, you can have theological beliefs and still, you know, be a scientist if you want. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of terrible examples of Christians believing terrible things or ridiculous things and using their degrees to justify it. <laughs> so there's that too. So yeah, there's mm -hmm. plenty to cringe about, but yeah. I think, our, so in Emil Bruner's Dogmatics, he in the second volume he talks about creation and he he just makes the point that we live in a world of deep time much deeper than the biblical authors conceived of like mm. we live in a universe of deep space much deeper than the biblical mm. authors conceived of mm -hmm. so we do theology when it comes to science i i feel like this is the world that we actually live in we actually live in a world that's probably a universe that's probably 13 and a half billion years old, uh, a planet that's like something like 6 billion years old, um, and like have to deal with it. That's where we start. And 
and theology isn't really remember, remember theology is about taking your present experience and projecting it back into creation and projecting it forward into eschatology uh, to say if my experience of god is what it is what does that mean in a universe that's this old or in mm-hmm. um, or in a universe that's expanding what does it say about the future like i'm terrified to answer that question um Mm-hmm. we just i feel like we just have to start with what we know and then build towards what we don't know rather than trying to re, re, and to do that we have to appreciate that the biblical authors just straight up did not know what we know about the universe they knew a great deal uh, and maybe more than we realized ourselves about about experiential theology about their experience mm-hmm. of god but we have a different burden than they did to, to bring that experience and say something fruitful about the universe that we actually live in. Um, yeah. Well, I love that you're talking about the expanding universe, right? Because, I mean, I think most people believe in the Big Bang or whatever. <laughs> uh, so there was a Big Bang and there was an explosion and everything came into being and the universe is still expanding and just the immensity of space. I mean, the, the scripture that I read at the beginning says, what is man that you're mindful of him, right? What are human beings? We're such little things in the universe. But yet our universe today is thousands, millions of times bigger than whatever it is that the psalmist had in mind, right? And I mean, it is, it is unfathomable even much more so, I think, to, to say that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. Like, wow. That's just, wow. It, it boggles the mind. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, and the more signs you know, the more it boggles the mind, I think. And to some extent, maybe the harder it is to affirm those traditional beliefs and claims, right? Yeah. Now, what, what is the opposite of the Big Bang? From what I've heard is, is what I've heard. I don't really read science, to be honest. I'm a math brain. <laughs> you, you're the guy with, you know, science and math. Uh, but I've heard that there's going to be a, like a big compression. <laughs> like That's what scientists believe. That's what I've heard. Correct me if I'm wrong. But so there's this expanding universe. And then at some point, there's going to be this moment where everything's going to be compacted into nothingness. So, uh a reverse, like an implosion of sorts. I don't know. What 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 do you have to say that scientists believe about the end? I think that scientists don't know, um, but there's there's like several options, some more likely than others. Uh, I read a really excellent book. It's a bestseller at the moment, I think, uh, by Katie Mack called The End of Everything, where she describes mm-hmm. all the possible ways that it could end. Okay. That are that are on the drawing board right now. But um yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that, I don't know, my gut tells me that what, that the, the best theories we have are probably pointing towards a never ending expansion and a, eventually all the stars will go out and everything will cool down and, uh, and everything will be spread apart. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I, if I, if I were to, guess that's what i think is most likely at the moment mm. um but our theories can change and grow yeah. and we can have new evidence mm. but that's sort of what's what we're facing at the moment i think yeah okay one more thing before we move on uh, in a little bit we're going to be talking about one of your favorite topics which is metaphysics <laughs> i'm kidding but anyhow let's talk a little bit about determinism so as of right now, you would say that determinism is an open question, would you not? Right. Yeah. So, uh, physical. Let's talk about physical determinism. Never mind mm-hmm. consciousness mm-hmm. and free will, which okay. may be emergent mm-hmm. or separate phenomenon. So, there is a um, before the twentieth century sort of revolutions in physics, the perspective on physics was that. Well, only th- the only thing stopping us from knowing the future is computational power, right? All we needed was to know the initial position and the initial speed of every particle, and then follow the laws of physics and just crank 
the computer's handle until we get the next, until we get the story about the failed future. So that's a deterministic future where given the current state of the world, we can calculate the next state in the future and so on. Nobody's ever going to do this, but, um, but on supposedly God does, right? Like I know there's a <laughs> yeah. certain theological system that believes that God's like a, this huge, big computer machine that keeps things open and no matter what happens he already knows where we're headed and he's going to make it happen and he adjusts depending on what we do and he's still gonna determine the ending no matter what our free will choices determine interesting so god outside of time just perceives the future because the future is just the same as the present which is the same as the past and god would have equal access to all of it so for God outside of time to know the future is not really that impressive. It's just it's right in front of God. You can just look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, for God inside of time to know the future, that's yeah, a bit more impressive, I guess, because you actually have to calculate the future, <laughs> provided that the it's deterministic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. quantum mechanics has shaken our confidence in determinism because quantum mechanics, like as I said, the wave function of quantum mechanics gives us a mathematical tool to predict the probability of certain outcomes of our experiments. And those probabilities, if you run the experiment a thousand times, you'll be able to verify that, yes, the probabilities are totally correct. It's an extremely powerful tool, but the results are always probabilistic. Mm-hmm. So this, this has led many people to think that if the wave function is all that there is, if there's nothing behind it to describe, if so remember Einstein was concerned that God does not play dice. So Einstein was not satisfied with the idea that the wave function was the full story. Mm. Uh, if the wave function was the full story, it looks very much like determinism is not true. Like even given um, full knowledge of the initial conditions, the wave function, you can't, you can't actually compute the future. You can just compute probable futures. But um, there are many interpretations of quantum mechanics most physicists don't worry about the philosophy of it. They've just focused on using it at a practical level. Um, but in the philosophical literature, the philosophy of science literature, there are deterministic versions of quantum mechanics. Uh, so, so just because some versions of quantum mechanics don't uh, lend themselves to determinism, it doesn't mean that uh, there are others that in fact do lead to determinism. And there's no way experimentally to tell one from the other. So it is a, it's still a philosophical question whether determinism is really true or not. Um, so that's why I think we should treat it as an open question. And for theology, um, just because physical determinism is true, if it is, that doesn't mean that we are determined. Um, it doesn't mean that the human is purely physical and that mm-hmm. answers about the physical answer all the questions about the, the person at the consciousness level or the level of the will so so anyway we still have quite a bit of breathing room in this area that's all i want to say yeah okay very informative i think most people don't even know that there's more than one version of quantum mechanics (laughs) yeah i include myself so thanks all right well let's move on uh let's talk about metaphysics and ethics in theology what what are your initial thoughts on this well, so metaphysics is is um, etymologically beyond physics or after physics. Mm-hmm. And as I said, there's different versions of quantum mechanics. They all lead to the same experimental results, So, but they all have different objects involved in them. And so metaphysics, like quantum interpreting modern physics becomes metaphysics actually quite quickly mm-hmm. because they're... We, there are like, remember, I was talking about the question of an absolute present and relativity. So, just because the, the, the version, the model for now that special relativity uses basically all the sets of four numbers with a zero in the T position, um, just because, just because that model is subject to different transformations, it doesn't mean that there isn't an actual metaphysical now sort of behind the theory that the theory is completely ignoring. But there's no experimental way to verify this. 
So the question of whether an absolute present exists, which is which bears on God and time, is a metaphysical question. It's not subject to an experimental confirmation or denial. So, um, yeah. So, so anyway, in theology, it's if your position depends on something that's at a great distance from experience. That's another way to say that is that it depends on something probably metaphysical. <laughs> then it's, I think it's vulnerable. It's a vulnerable place to be in a bad way to have your theology built upon something that is, that is kind of out of reach. So that would be negative, right? <laughs> I know. Negative. I know what you mean. <laughs> right. But I think uh, people who are really into metaphysics would say that. If everything uh, is foundationally our experience and our interpretation, then what do we really have? Since everyone's experience differs from every other person. So, I mean, I can really see how people who are into metaphysics would also argue against what you just said. I'm not really taking sides on this, but yes, I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. It's not knowing your limits, right? So, yeah, they, you, may, you may get this criticism. Oh, you can't use experience. Everyone has a different experience. And so... Who was to this? Who's to decide? Well, sorry, that's how it works. Like we just don't, we can't do better than that. You, I find that when you when you lean on metaphysics, often what you're really doing is pounding the table. You're saying, everybody, shut up. We're gonna do it this way, <laughs> and and it's and it's a way to sort of um, unify these various perspectives, almost in a coercive coercive way. I guess as long as you can convince people to sign up. Um, but the, tr mm -hmm. but the truth is, is we are stuck in our own perspectives. We, I can't see anything other than what comes to my two eyes. Mm -hmm. And I just need to acknowledge that and try to build something for, on that. Uh, and this is why experience in theology is a great place to be because actually God is available in experience and you actually can build something worth having. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, I've been reading and studying theology for a while, two decades at this point, now that I've been good at it for two decades. But uh, yeah, this has never really been a topic of interest to me. But as of late, I would just say the last two, three years, it's become a source of interest to me. And I know there are a lot of good theologians that I can read on the subject, and I'm probably going to spend a good amount of time really going deep into those because I think it is important and I think it is interesting, if nothing else. Um, so, yes, metaphysics. So what wh what do we want to say about meta metaphysics? So God, the world, modern physics, metaphysics now. <laughs> How are they all connected? Well, modern physics has given us a new worldview at a, at a sort of a fundamental level of what the physical world is we live in people will take the success of modern physics and they'll assume that the metaphysics that certain physicists are using must also be correct mm -hmm. so the credibility of physics gets transferred to the metaphysics of the people who mm -hmm. are writing the physics yeah now that's a mistake mm -hmm. it's not that their metaphysics is wrong it's just that it doesn't deserve the credibility that the physics has right mm -hmm. experiments confirm physical questions they don't mm -hmm. confirm metaphysical questions otherwise we'd be talking about physics not metaphysics and so it's important to identify in a physical theory which parts of it are actually metaphysics and which parts and and the, the truth is is that you can't just do pure physics it's very difficult you need to write stuff down which means you need to choose coordinates you have to work with tools but are those tools creations of your of your approach or are they some are they or do they actually correspond to something physical um and i think that for example in the special relativity the concept like the significance of the relativity of simultaneity is is almost about zero but it was taken as very significant because people reified Einstein's particular convention for simultaneity. And so the, the credibility of special relativity and of Albert Einstein 
was transferred onto the abolition of a universal present with no real justification beyond a leaking of that credibility from one to the other. So, yeah. Well, it seems to be the case, at least on Twitter, right? That, you know, the more cutting edge a Christian is with their theology, uh, the less metaphysics seems to play an important role. They tend to do theology where they pay more attention to ethics and where maybe existentialist philosophy undergirds much of what they do and say, which, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I mean, for me, I just, I just think that certain ideas in traditional classical metaphysics are important and I still I still affirm right like I believe in creation ex nihil to me that makes sense and to me if that is not true nothing else makes sense like there is no reason for hope if we cannot at least affirm that to me okay uh and everything's interconnected right creation eschatology our historical world um and so I think uh even that, even though metaphysics is largely "quote unquote" outdated, old-fashioned, and mm-hmm. in many ways it is. In many ways it is. I think it's a mistake that a lot of people do to just discount it altogether and say, "Well, you know, they're using Aristotelian categories. Who does that today?" And somehow, <laughs> supposedly, that uh, is supposed to demolish everything all the claims of metaphysics. I think that's a mistake. And I think that there are cent- there are a few central beliefs in classical metaphysics that are very important. And I don't think we should so quickly uh, get rid of them. Maybe we do need to reformulate them. Maybe we need a new framework perhaps, but I think it, it really is a mistake. I see so many people just throwing it out all together for no reason. I, well, no, not for no reason, but too quickly, perhaps. Yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to get that out there. Thoughts? Okay. Well, we need tools to do theology, and and um, which means we and most of the, those tools are language mostly. Like we need words, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So metaphysics is when you take those words and you say, "Aha, my words." Not only do they are they useful. But the way I'm describing it refers to something out there in reality that metaphysics is about what exists. It's about saying that something exists or does not exist rather than saying that my, that my words are useful. I'm saying my words are telling are, are, are the way I'm describing it is the way that it actually is. Mm-hmm. So it's really connected to the problem of demythologization in theology. Um, demythologization is, is realizing the limits of language and the mm. limits of metaphor mm-hmm. and the role of metaphor. And, mm-hmm. and it isn't, again, Emil Bruner helps me with this. It's not about stopping using language or only using pure language. There is no such thing. There's no way to do theology with pure language, completely shorn of all, um, of all possible uh, variations in meaning um, or all myth of all, of all metaphysics right but um but it's but it's about for me it's about knowing your limits and and so sure i'm gonna use a metaphysics almost no matter what but i want to i want to be able to pull back and replace it when required and, and realize when it's actually part of the good news or just a um a vehicle to to articulate it so. Excellent. Uh, I agree with what you said. Again, I'm not terribly well read on metaphysics, other than, you know, I mean, I read a number of systematic theologies and they always talk about it, but I've never really given it the attention that I think it deserves. And I'm going to be doing that. And I think it's okay to reject a set of theological claims, but uh, I feel, and I can't prove, but I feel like a lot of people reject things that they have never truly comprehended first. And to me, that's odd. So, 
Oh yeah, life's if, short. That's the only way to go. <laughs> so if you want to just dump metaphysics into the trash, fine. But you know, like really study it, really know it, and learn it from the best proponents, and and then design. Don't just reject whatever ideas you grew up with in Sunday school and think you have rejected metaphysics thereby. <laughs> okay, cool. Well. I think this has been an excellent talk on a very vital and important topic. I'm sure many people were probably thoroughly confused at times, but you know, theology is confusing sometimes, especially when you throw science into the mix. Any parting words of advice for the bewildered, confused listeners, Ben? <laughs> uh, well, maybe the best advice is if you care about one of these topics, with a bit of passion, go read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy articles about it because they're mm -hmm. free, they're online, they're excellent, and they they break this stuff down really well. Whether you're talking about physics, uh, much of theology, metaphysics, time, uh, there's an excellent article on the perception or the phenomenology of time. Mm. Just what does time feel mm. like from our perspective? And that's, there's, it's a wonderful resource um, and we're blessed to have it before Facebook hoovered it up. I mean, oh, that's not going to happen. That hasn't happened yet, I guess. It's coming up soon, I'm sure. <laughs> well, excellent advice. Excellent advice. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next time in episode 21. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.